0: Yes, we're back. Another week, another instalment of MLEX's podcast covering the biggest regulatory stories from our team of reporters around the world. This week, a fascinating yarn from our Brussels office, which looks into how environmental activists are turning to courts across Europe to have their arguments about global warming listened to and on occasion validated. The human rights-based lawsuits are having a real and immediate impact on emissions policies in the bloc, And as a recent court victory against Shell in the Netherlands may suggest, the scope of this court action is broadening to take on industry players as well as governments. Our energy reporter, Julia Bedini, will be joining us in just over 10 minutes' time to bring us up to speed. First up, though, fish for finance. No, it's not an upmarket eatery across the road from HSBC's London headquarters. It is, in fact, the latest instalment of a post-Brexit clash, in which access to fishing grounds is being bartered for access to European financial markets. Although even that explanation may be an oversimplification, as we're about to hear. Fiona Maxwell is a senior financial services correspondent for MLex in London. Jack Schickler is a senior financial services correspondent in Brussels. And both of them join me right now. Uh, Fiona, given the limitations of my brief introduction just now, let's maybe start with a definition. What is fish for finance?
1: Great. Hi, James. Um, So fish for finance um, basically refers to uh, when discussions went on between the the UK and the EU um, over Brexit and the future relationship before the UK actually uh, left the bloc. So basically, there were some really high stakes items that each side wanted to obtain after Brexit for the EU. That was fishing rights for its member states. And for the UK, uh, it was better access for its prized City of London. So this kind of fish for finance concept came about, which is that the UK would give up access to its waters, uh, while the EU would grant the UK preferential access to the bloc's financial markets. That hasn't quite worked out. So the EU managed to obtain fairly good fishing rights, um, but financial services was left out of the trade deal pretty much altogether. So City of London is kind of locked out of the EU's markets in many areas um, and Brussels has declined to give uh, the UK any more access decisions, known as equivalents.
0: And we should uh, point out that all of this is playing out really in the seas off the island of Jersey, one of the Channel Islands. Tell us about those geopolitical developments.
1: Yeah, so there's a particular debate that's playing out at the moment, which is a, a row over... France's fishing license in Jersey's waters, and whether French fishermen have to prove a history of operating in Jersey to be able to to gain their fishing license. so the way this relate relates back to finance is that France has been said to hold up uh, the finalisation of a memorandum of understanding between the EU um, and the UK, uh, which basically has the aim of kind of solidifying regulatory cooperation between the two sides.
0: Okay. And now you say in your analysis of this issue that this idea of fish for finance, in fact, misses the point. So what point does it miss exactly?
1: Yes. Um, yeah, So excuse the pun, but I, I I, think I said it was a bit of a red herring. Um, so... <laughs> uh yeah there's no there's no doubt that the there the probably is some thinking in paris that um holding the the memorandum of understanding hostage um until this this jersey fit fishing situation is sorted um is kind of a good trade off um but uh, the point i think it misses is that for the financial services industry this is just basically yet another issue and it's just another opportunity for Um, the City of London to not be able to access the EU's markets, essentially. So, like I said, um, uh, finance was essentially left out of the trade deal. Um, The UK has been given two of these access or equivalence decisions and and those are those are time limited anyway so I think basically at this point the city of London is kind of rolling its eyes and saying you know well there's not fishing rights it's another spat um between the two sides like vaccines or the northern island protocol so um I, I don't think necessarily it's fish for finance anymore it's kind of it's, it's just like not the best relationship between the two sides that's holding things up
0: Mm. Jack, is that the sense that you're getting from your side in Brussels as well? Is there rolling of eyes? Are people uh, convinced that it's not just about fishing rights? What's, what's the take there?
2: Well, uh, what's clear is, is there won't be any favours done for the UK in an atmosphere in which uh, there is a very bad overall relationship Uh, And, you know, when there are being warships being sent out and accusations that uh, the UK has just broken an agreement it's already reached, uh, you know, that is not a very positive environment in which to operate. That said, uh, you know, equivalence is is not a hugely political exercise. It's a very boring, legalistic one of the kind Brussels really excels in. Um, there's no single button that people in Brussels press to to launch equivalence. It's a series of dozens and dozens of different little bits of legislation, some of which are less important than others, um, and each of which has its own um, set of rules. And the bureaucrats in Brussels are going to comb through those rules and check whether they've all been complied with. Um, and that is the legalistic approach you can expect them to take. That said, you know, Brussels isn't stupid. Uh, it's going to act in its own interests it does want to encourage a lot of City of London business to move to the EU, uh, whether that's Frankfurt or Paris or wherever. Uh, And if it thinks it can use these equivalence decisions as leverage um, to encourage that, it will. Um, And it will also use its own leverage in negotiations. So if it thinks by holding up these equivalence decisions, even if they're not very important, it's going to get uh, what is quite an important leverage uh, on negotiations over fisheries, then it's hard to exclude that they will do that, even if officials tend to deny it.
0: And Fiona, the, the memorandum of understanding that's been discussed in this context, just tell us something about what that is and what uh, what's the likelihood of further equivalence decisions being granted from the EU to the UK.
1: Yeah, so the the MOU is essentially just a document saying that the UK's finance ministry and, and the European Commission will kind of discuss or meet a certain number of times a year and we'll cooperate on financial services and um, it certainly brings no promise of um, additional equivalence, equivalence decisions um, and I, I don't think the city of London is under any illusions that it will lead to that. What I would say is that it, it's been viewed as a kind of really positive and harmonious step in what has otherwise been um, quite an acrimonious Brexit divorce where like Jack just said um, you know things are being traded for um, and being held up as as kind of um, uh, political cards. As to whether further equivalent decisions will be granted, it's impossible really to say, but it's, it's not the message that the EU is sending out right now. So um, like Jack said, uh, Brussels wants to bring more UK business into the EU. It doesn't want to rely on the City of London anymore. So I guess it's kind of questionable why it would allow the UK better access to its markets when it could really profit from not doing so.
2: The the point I'd add to that is, you know, in, in a lot of these cases, it is it ultimately in the EU's interest to grant equivalents? Um, a lot of the companies using the liquidity in the City of London are EU companies, you know, big listed companies like SAP and Air France, which are often listed in London, um, and need to access derivatives and securities and, and, and other kind of financial instruments that basically are only traded in London and you just don't get the same level of depth in anywhere on the continent. Uh, so, you know, in a sense, they're shooting themselves on the foot and they've kind of they've given these kind of emergency equivalence decisions already um, because EU companies want them to. So uh, it's not necessarily just about the finance industry. There are some real economy companies here. And another point I make uh, in response to what since Fiona brought up the, the very exciting and tiny island of Jersey, Uh, this seems to be the centre point of all of this. Uh,
0: In her defence, I think I brought it up.
2: uh, (laughs) Well, once it's in the conversation, it's in. Because actually (laughs) the other thing that a lot of people in Brussels, particularly in the European Parliament, are saying is, hang on, why should we let the City of London have all this access if uh, the UK supports um, tax avoidance and money laundering? Uh, and this this is kind of related to the idea that London might try and set itself up as a Singapore on Thames, but attention will focus not just on the UK's tax policy, but on some of the uh, some of the places that are attached to the UK and which have a slightly dodgy reputation for tax avoidance and money laundering, including the Channel Islands,
0: indeed, right?
2: Including the Channel Islands, which, as well as being having a fairly small fishing sector. Uh, is a huge financial centre, uh, which lots of companies brass plate and otherwise set up in uh, because of the, the fairly lax rules. And uh, quite some attention will be paid on, you know, to what extent uh, is that brought to heel and, as part of the condition for equivalence decisions.
0: And Jack just more broadly does any of this really matter? I mean given the upheaval of Brexit and everything that uh, that Europe
2: and the UK have been through already does this really matter? Well, as Fiona said, uh, you know the big prize is gone. Banks in London don't have their passport anymore. They're never going to get their passport that passport basically meant they could do business anywhere across the EU for huge swathes of of financial business. The UK is no longer in the single market. No number of equivalence decisions is ever going to give that back. Um, So in a sense, it's not a big deal. It's just the last straw this huge industry is left clinging to. But as I also said, uh, you know, it takes significance purely because it's important to the UK. Uh, The more the UK... Feels it's important to get equivalence decisions. The more that will become a bargaining chip.
0: Fiona, is that your perspective uh, from London? Does it matter to the financial services people that you are speaking to?
1: Um, I think that's a really good point from Jack. And, and actually, does it does it matter to the City of London? Um, not not hugely anymore. Um, I think they've kind of given up the idea that um, any. Uh, further equivalence decisions will happen and and whether the two current temporary ones will be extended you know that and that's the message from uh, the industry and it's even the message from regulators like um the senior regulators at the bank of england are saying that we we won't be held hostage to uh you know getting equivalence decisions the biggest issue um and this will come up again over the course of the next year is uh the equivalence of clearing houses um and this is where equivalence really uh, is needed to avoid um financial stability issues so there was a temporary decision that was given and that'll expire uh june next year um so i think we'll just have to wait and see on that one but you know for for other for other parts of the industry for derivatives for shares trading uh i think people have given up hope to be honest
0: Mm. Fiona and Jack, great talking as always. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks. Thank you.
0: Jack Schickler and Fiona Maxwell are members of MLEX's financial services reporting team. They were speaking to us from Brussels and London, respectively. Fiona has a fine piece of analysis online right now dealing with the fish for finance issue, and you can read it at our website, MlexMarketInsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab. Subscribers, of course, have an entire portfolio of coverage on this issue from Fiona and Jack. There's all of the background you could possibly want on the reverberations of Brexit on the UK financial services industry. Next up on the M-L-E-X podcast, why human rights have become a significant legal battlefield in the fight against climate change. Thank you so much for sticking around. James Paniki is my name. I'm Mlex's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. It's great to have your company today. Don't forget that you can subscribe to Mlex Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. Now, lawsuits by activists targeting EU governments are emerging as a fresh source of regulatory risk for businesses, with national courts increasingly persuaded to order policymakers to do more to hit climate targets. Germany has hosted just the most recent case of a lawsuit leading to a court ordering tougher action on greenhouse gas emissions. Our Brussels-based energy reporter, Julia Bedini has been covering this story, and she joins me now. So, uh, Julia, let's start from that case in Germany, because the country is now set to leapfrog climate neutrality commitments, bringing them forward to 2045. So where does this come from, given that The EU as a bloc, of course, is still pursuing the net zero goal for 2050.
3: Yeah, exactly. So basically, uh, this stems from a ruling by the country's constitutional court, which last month found that the German climate law was partially unconstitutional uh, because it was placing too much burden for emissions reduction on future generations. Um, So this case was brought uh, to the court by young activists. And as a consequence of this ruling, the the coalition government that's led by outgoing chancellor Angela Merkel uh, was asked to... uh, clarify its plans for the period after 2031 by the end of 2022. Uh, But however, what the government decided to do was to push ahead tighter emissions reduction targets for 2030, as well as anticipate, as we said, climate neutrality by 2045 instead of 2050.
0: So so it was prompted to do this as a result of this court decision, right?
3: Yes, exactly. And this is an interesting case because it highlights how uh, climate activists that are being forced in their homes uh, because of the pandemic may have found a successful setting for the battles in the courtroom.
0: Oh, I see. So it's, it's all of these uh, activists with extra time on their hands at, at home in front of the computer, that what's going on?
3: Yeah, that's part uh, That's part of it. And also, we, we need to keep in mind, however, that the choice of the government must be read within a political context in which, well, federal elections are approaching, and the Greens are also emerging as a favorite party. So politicians really now have an interest in Germany, especially, but not only in displaying, so to say, their willingness to, to fight against climate change.
1: Okay,
0: then. So is this ruling in the German city of Karlsruhe an isolated? Case, or does it in fact point to an emerging trend?
3: Well, definitely, uh, it's a sign of an emerging trend. So, the the German climate case uh, is only the latest example of European governments prompted to accelerate climate action. Uh, by activists uh, scoring these successes in courts. And the common thread seems to be that the legal grounding of the suits uh, are alleged breaches of human rights. So uh, if we look back in time, uh, there was the so-called Urgenda case in the Netherlands, uh, and that was a bit of a of a trendsetter in climate litigation. This was initiated in 2015 uh, by an environmental group uh, and supported by hundreds of citizens and finally ended in 2019 with a ruling again by the Dutch Supreme Court that forced the government to raise its goals uh, for climate for 2020. And that prompted similar challenges across uh, different countries in Europe, including France and Belgium. And after that, uh, we've seen similar cases in Ireland last year Year. And then earlier this year, uh, there was an administrative court in Paris who basically reprimanded policymakers for not doing enough to cut pollution as pledged in the in the Paris Agreement.
0: And Julia, the key to, to what you're telling me is that they're going through a, a particular route, and that is human rights. They're not uh, arguing uh, this on the grounds of environmental laws. They're talking about a person's basic human right to uh, avoid Uh, climate change.
3: Yeah, that's correct. So sometimes they tend to refer to national environmental law as well. But uh, it seems to be that the most successful part of the lawsuits are are based on human rights. Yeah, exactly. Mm.
0: Now, part of the success of these cases will be determined by the level of access to justice that individual citizens and environmental organisations will have. So what are the prospects uh, for that in Europe?
3: Yeah, so uh, when we look at national courts and legislation, NGOs uh, so far have proved quite successful at having their environmental cases heard and judged, uh, but that isn't the case for EU courts in Luxembourg, uh, because there, let's say that the bar to, to have legal standing remains very high. Um, And to give you an example, uh, judges recently rebuffed a a climate challenge that was filed by a group of families uh, saying that they were not individually concerned by the policies that they challenged. And that was a climate package. Um, And and This is known as the people climate case. Uh, However, if we look ahead, things uh, could change uh, because the the bloc's governments and the European Parliament are now negotiating a reform of the ARUS regulation. And that's a piece of legislation which determines to what extent NGOs can challenge EU acts. Uh, And so uh, as it stands, for example, regulations and directives cannot be appealed, but time will tell us if this will be be tweaked. And on top of that, we now have uh, the European climate law that sets targets for 2030 and 2050. And I'm sure activists won't be shy to to invoke that in front of national, if not EU judges in the future.
0: All right, so much uh, for NGOs and their future prospects. What about business? Why should businesses worry about this trend?
3: Well, uh, first of all, we shouldn't uh, overstate the impact of such rulings, uh, siding, as we said, with climate activists, because in general, many jurisdictions, especially Europe, are clearly underway towards stricter environmental rules. We have low carbon technologies becoming market ready at a fast pace and there's a general political will to to press ahead green policies. Think of the Build Back Better uh, narrative now. Uh, This means that businesses are set to face tighter standards on emissions and requirements to switch to clean energy in any case. However, what intervention by national courts and by judges can do is lead policymakers to, let's say, shift gear and accelerate policies that otherwise could take years uh, to be agreed and enter into force, especially when it comes to EU level legislation. So the risk is therefore for businesses to see tighter rules and higher carbon prices sooner than expected. And in a way, this could generate some some degree of uncertainty for, for companies.
0: Okay. Now let's get to the most recent example of this. Uh, This week, a court in the Netherlands uh, ordered Shell to slash its carbon emissions by 2030. So the the court sided with climate activists who had brought the, the lawsuit to the court. It was a decision that obviously attracted international headlines. But what is peculiar about this latest case and how does it relate to the other cases that you've been following?
3: Yeah, so the case uh, is a first of its kind because it saw activists score a climate case victory against a private company instead of a government. And so in particular, in this ruling, the Dutch judges underlined that non-state action is also needed to implement the Paris Agreement and that companies are liable for climate change, for their emissions. So not only policy makers. And basically they argued that businesses contribution to climate, uh, to global warming can result in breaches of human rights and companies have an individual responsibility for that that's uh, largely recognised in international law. So this isn't the end of the story, uh, because Shell said it will appeal the ruling. So this will continue probably for some years. Um, Nonetheless, uh, climate activists have hailed this as a historic victory. And it's very likely that the case will have international resonance as momentum around climate policy continues. And more broadly, uh, there's a lot of consciousness of environmental damages and rising uh, temperatures uh, in The population as well.
0: Julia, these are extraordinary developments. So thank you so much for following them with uh, such care and thank you for talking to me uh, today. Let's catch up again very soon.
3: Thank you, James. My pleasure. Speak soon.
0: Julia Bedini reports for MLEX on EU energy issues from Brussels and her analysis on the ramped up legal challenges by environmentalists is online, ready for you to peruse. MLEXMarketInsight.com. That's MLEXMarketInsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab. And when you log on to the MLEX website, you'll see a bright banner directing you to our most recent special report on the high-stakes Epic Games versus Apple lawsuit in the United States. This is a fight that goes to the heart of Apple's App Store and is in many ways the harbinger of other antitrust legal challenges to come. If you enjoyed hearing our San Francisco correspondents Amy Miller and Mike Acton chatting about this on last week's podcast, you'll love to go through the enormous amount of reporting they've done on this issue alongside Mike Swift. The special report is ready for you to download. You'll see it the moment you land on the MLex website. Very sorry to say this, but that's all we have time for today. We'll be back in your feed next week at more or less the same time. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at Mlex and LexisNexis. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.